You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. Um, David, welcome to the podcast once again and gosh, just it never stops in the energy world. It's just another very busy week. Never seems to get started in Victoria. If it's not lockdown, it's floods, uh, you know, or something else down there. It's the pestilence down there, isn't it? You know, they obviously... Uh, haven't sacrificed enough offerings to the right people. Yes, or uh, they walked under a ladder or a black cat crossed the road or something like that. Um, but speaking of Victoria, um, look, um, we've, we've um, talked a lot about Victoria and the 50% renewable energy target. We've talked a lot about the lack of transmission in that state and some of the hold-ups that have even started generating yet. And Mirabal looks like it's going slowly. Um, but there's an even bigger project happening down there, um, Golden Plains. Uh, that's right, Giles, and we were fortunate enough to uh, score an interview with uh, uh, Toby Geiger, uh, who's the managing director of Westwind, and they've, as I said, in the, as we say in the interview, have uh, developed uh, uh, three wind farms already uh, in Victoria with a capacity of 600 megawatts, so he's an experienced operator and, and, uh, and, and knows his way around the traps, so maybe we should uh, listen to what Toby had to say. Let's do that. Welcome to Toby Geiger, uh, Managing Director of Westwind. Toby, it's a uh, pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Good afternoon, Dave. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Uh, Westwind's uh, developed uh, about three wind farms, as far as I can see so far in Victoria, Lal Lal, Moorambool uh, and Mount Mercer, with a capacity of about six, over 600 megawatts and uh, uh, on sold them to three different uh, developers, which I think is a pretty good uh, track record. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about the outlook for wind development at the moment compared to how it's been in the past few years? Yeah, so the, the outlook for wind development is actually a lot more rosy now than it, it was uh, a couple of years ago when when we were trying to find uh, investors for, for Lalal and Morable. Um, some five, six years ago, um, it was really, really tough to find investors in, in this space. And now we're in a situation where there's, there's actually more interest from investors than there are um, good quality projects in the market. And uh, uh, I guess also, though, there's kind of a, like technical issues about getting connected to the grid. And we've seen, uh, you know, pretty ridiculous delays in the case of, say, Stockyard Hill and quite slow commissioning of Mirable as well. How's that side of it looking? Yeah, we're looking at the developments there at Mirable and and Stockyard Hill, but also to to a degree Dundonnell and, and Mortlake South uh, with, with quite a bit of, of worry. Um, but also we've, we've tried to take our learnings from that. So we're working very closely with the AEMO and we're spending a lot more money on engineering up front and doing a lot more design work up front in order to then make the actual connection application um, process and modeling more smoothly. Uh, and hopefully that uh, strategy works out. I'll come back to that a little bit further. Let's talk a, a bit about the Golden Plains project, which I think uh, was originally going to be 
around about 800 megawatts to a gigawatt. Can you tell me a little bit about the uh, history of the project and uh, how it's looking at the moment? Yep. Well, the history started many years ago in probably 2005 when I had the first uh, glass of wine with one of the landholders there and it's developed from there. So for many years, we didn't um, further the, the the project because it was just um, cost prohibitive to break into the 500 kV line, and we developed the other projects, uh, you know, Mount Mercer, La La Morable, um, during that period of time. Then, uh, in earnest, we're 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 focusing on on Golden Plains really since 2016, and the project has uh, since grown also from that 800 to about a thousand megawatts to about 1,300 uh, megawatts. And we're planning to deliver that project in two stages, stage one with about 730-odd megawatts and uh, stage two with uh, the rest and probably with the addition of a big battery storage as well. Yeah, oh, wow, that's that's uh, certainly a significant project uh, because I think even at uh, 1,000 megawatts, it's like 2% of the whole electricity supply in the in the NEM. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I guess uh, um, let's let's talk about uh, uh, what you need to make a project succeed, which is, I guess, someone to, to pay for the development, mm-hmm. uh, um, someone with the skills to operate it and, and develop it, <laughs> and someone to take the take the um, offtake. The traditional model's been to find um, a buyer first and get that to lower the cost. But uh, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, well, that was one of the key features of uh, the Golden Plains Wind Farm in our search for the right investors for Golden Plains. And uh, really at the time of Scout, the, the globe to find the, the right investors and the right investor for a project like a Golden Plains is someone who's prepared to invest in the project on a largely merchant basis. Um, not only are the days of, of uh, big PPAs gone, um, it's also that a lot of the value is actually given away to whoever the off-taker is. Um, so we, we've looked at, at many companies across the globe, over 40 parties that we talked to, and it came down to a handful, roughly, that were prepared to invest on a merchant basis in the Golden Plains Wind Farm. And um, you might have seen a recent announcement in uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance around the investor coming in at Golden Plains being TAG Energy, and they are prepared to invest in the project on a merchant basis. And then as we're going into construction and have more clarity around our dispatch dates, um, we will then, of course, look for for offtake. Um, But in this case, we we put uh, finance and construction first and then offtake thereafter. And dare I say, many years ago, um, people always perceived the biggest risk to a project being um, getting a PPA. I would say that has clearly shifted the biggest risk nowadays, uh, getting connected in the time frame that you're planning to connect into. Yeah, and so, I mean, all going well, I think you had a recent newsletter out suggesting that you might start construction uh, in the first half of calendar 2022. Uh, If you get are able to do that when do you think the uh, project would energize and and maybe be fully commissioned yeah so we're looking at uh, financial close towards the end of this year then commence construction early in 2022 energization we would expect sort of mid 2023 
Uh, and then that is when we would start to commission turbines and starting dispatch. And then the, the full completion of the project and commercial operations, we would expect that in the second half of 2024. And so there's been a lot of focus in Australia on the falling cost of solar, I guess, because households see that for themselves and mm -hmm. because we've got people like Professor Martin Green who can explain it all. Uh, very well uh, and also we've got lots of sun we don't hear as much about what's happening with the cost of wind uh, uh, how are you thinking about that and wind's competitiveness and place in the market mm -hmm. well it's certainly true that the um, cost decline in solar has has been much faster and continues to be much faster than in wind and we're now at the point where, where solar has got lower LCOE in good locations than, than wind. Um, we see the cost decline in wind uh, to be pretty modest. Um, there's probably not that terribly much uh, coming anymore. Uh, but it also has become increasingly a question of value rather than uh, cost of, of electricity. And where we see the, the strength of wind is really that it is more um, diverse in terms of the time of generation um, than solar, we pretty much all produces at the same time. And, and we see that it is not only about LCOE, it's about finding the right location to have the best value of your electricity and then play a value game rather than just a low cost game. Yeah, and I guess on that, I mean, um, it is fair, I think, to say that there's a lot of wind in South Australia and Victoria already. I mean, it's mm -hmm. the biggest share. Um, um, and then there's also the prospect of offshore wind. We recently did an interview on the um, uh, 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 the Bass Strait project, mm -hmm. Star of the South. Um, that's very high cost, but one of the reasons that offset that might be that the uh, you know, it was better correlated with demand and less correlated with other wind. I mean, do you think, are we overemphasizing Victoria or? or um, yeah. No, I don't think we're overemphasizing um, Victoria at all. Uh, if you look at uh, Victoria's electricity or energy supply in general, it's still very much uh, reliant on brine coal generation and on gas. Um, so there is certainly plenty of room left for, for wind and solar um, in the market. And I do agree that the Star of the South uh, project's main attraction is the disconnect between when it is generating from, uh, from the other wind projects that we do have in the state. Um, I had a very interesting conversation the other day with Damien Sanford from, from Osnet, who said, you know, if you think about the amount of gas that is used in Victoria for, for heating, particularly in the winter months, um, that gas peak that will need an awful lot of gigawatts of, of wind and solar to replace that if we really want to um, go net zero emissions uh, in sort of by 2050. And how do you think, uh, it's not really necessarily your job to think about the firming side of things, but I mean, a lot of projects uh, uh, these days want to offer, I mean, if you look at the New South Wales model, they're probably going to give uh, sort of contracts out that mm -hmm. Uh, um, uh, sort of semi-firmed at least. Um, uh, how are you approaching the, the question of, of the need for firming and like is it something that you should be doing at Golden Plains uh, or, or is it someone else's job? It is our job, David, and I think a renewable um, developer who just goes back to the old business model where it's all about you know, 
building a project and, and, and that's it and then let it run and set and forget, those days are long gone. You need to actively manage your generation output for the life of the project and that includes firming. And at the end of the day, um, you know, a wind farm produces when the wind blows, a solar farm produces when the sun shines and those times do not necessarily correlate with when the electricity user wants to use the electricity. So you need firming. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, and wind and solar projects, they will increasingly need to operate like a, a power station with a, with a firming option attached to it. And that could either be at the project site itself with physical firming there with battery storage or pumped hydro in some locations, um, or with a contractual arrangement with somebody that provides that firming. But it's certainly very clearly on our radar. We feel it's also our responsibility and, and need to do something in that space and add further value um, to what we're doing. I guess you can can add value potentially. I mean, the way I see companies like Nextera approach it in the United States is they want to add a like four hour firmer onto a project rather than firming every megawatt hour, which seems mm -hmm. to make sense to me. Because mm -hmm. when you look at an aggregate, you don't really need to uh, uh, to firm the whole thing. Uh, you only need to firm uh, the parts where there might be a shortfall. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'd better say something a bit more controversial, otherwise this will be a short phone call. <laughs> now, now you, you've uh, done something also that I uh, think is the right thing to do, but it's difficult, and that is you've specialised pretty much in Victoria and in wind and developed mm -hmm. some expertise in, in, in one arguably narrow area. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you see West Wind... Is there a limit to what you can do in Victoria or, in, or, 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 or can you just uh, stay there and keep developing wind farms and stuff like that for a good while yet? Yeah. Look, um, there is a limit in Victoria. Uh, that's certainly the case, but there's still an awful lot to go before we reach that limit if we want to replace the, the last uh, uh, brown coal-fired power stations with, with renewables. So we see that there continues to be a lot of work to be done in Victoria. Um, we were questioning ourselves for some time whether we are too narrow with wind, but what we're finding out is that probably in a time between 2014 and 2017, solar was all the hype and, and we were sort of a bit of the, the stepchild in the industry. And that has, has swung around and the expertise that we've accumulated of, over many years in specialising in wind, in wind is now really paying off. Uh, because it appears that quite a few developers that have moved into solar, they've lost a bit of touch in developing wind projects and particularly what has happened in the planning space and in the community expectation in that period of time. Whereas we've continued to grow and, and specialise in that area. And we see that that specialisation has actually become one of our major strengths and we don't see too much of a, a constraint uh, in that market for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that, that uh, as I said, I'm a great fan of uh, specialisation and getting. Uh, I think it's very hard to be good at more than one or two things. Mm. It's always been even one thing in my case. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, we talk about, uh, and it's interesting to me to come back to this uh, prospect of uh, development and and then selling it. I mean, you you need a certain confidence as a developer that the offtake will be there, mm -hmm. even even for stage one of this project, which is 750 megawatts. I mean, it's bigger than the uh, entire three projects you've done so far. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not going to be a single 
off-taker, is it? Mm. I mean, how you know, you, you have to have some idea about the off-take, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And and that is really where we see the strength of, of tag energy coming in, because that is their business model as being essentially uh, a, a Gentile model, uh, where you actively manage your generation portfolio and, and a customer base. And uh, and it is, I would say, any project, even with a, with a PPA in place, it just means you're moving the problem of when you have to deal with your electricity and multiple customers from at the beginning of the project to 10 or 15 years down the track, but you still have to do it. Whereas we, we want to do that right from the beginning. And, and that's where we see actually a, an advantage in the market because you're prepared what's going on and you, you develop the right products and services for the market. If you provide the right products and services in the market, then there certainly is a market for your electricity. Yeah. And, and again, I, I sort of, uh, um, think that the market will develop so that we'll have traditional gentailers. It's just that they'll have renewable energy mm-hmm. uh, rather than thermal energy, but you'll still in the end be developing uh, with a long-term supply and selling essentially shorter-term contracts, which is Correct. what I see as one of, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and indeed, what about in terms of operations? Do you, do, I mean, it's one thing to be a financial investor and just uh, own, own, own a wind farm, mm-hmm. uh, but it's another thing to operate it to its very best and to be able to develop it and sort of eke out another 10 basis points of return every year and mm-hmm. make it add up and develop a real skill. Is, is, do, do, can you see people, uh, you know, the market consolidating and the sort of good operators emerging? Uh, definitely. You know, in the- yeah, no, def- definitely see that. I mean, our um, our brothers and sisters overseas in, in Germany, they've been um, managing the operations of, of their project since 1999. And they've uh, gained an awful lot of operational experience and optimise, um, you know, the value creation in your assets. And so we can build on what they've um, developed and learned there over time. But we can also see increasingly in the market is an integration of, of your actual physical asset management and, and your trading off of electricity that you harmonize those two, two work streams. And um, it's, it's also increasingly important to, to think like an operator when you're when you do when you're still developing a project, you want to develop a project so with an operator's um, hat on, so that you know what you're doing there will not potentially cause you shortfalls in your operation later, or make your operation extremely difficult, or you have too much uh, you know wake loading on your turbines or whatever it might be. Absolutely, and. Uh... Uh, I guess I, I, I presume the capacity factor that we're talking about with Golden Plains, I mean, wind farm capacity factors always look better in the spreadsheet than in reality, I find. But mm-hmm. I mean, are, are we talking about the sort of 40, 42% mark? Is that realistic, do you think? Uh, no, it'd be nice, uh, but we, we won't quite get there. Well, we would get there if we had uh, smaller generators for the rotor sizes that we're looking at. We're looking in the high 30s, uh, to be honest yeah. with you, Dave, and and that really is a is a trade off. We could get to higher capacity factors, but then we would have less turbines and have to share the grid connection cost over less turbines, or we sacrifice a little bit of capacity factor and high, having higher weight losses, but then the grid connection cost per turbine is lower, and there's an optimization process that you go through. And in this case, um, we really 
uh, came to the conclusion that it's better for this project to have more turbines and sacrifice a bit of capacity factor because the cost to connect into the 500 kilovolt uh, network is quite uh, significant and you want to make sure that you use that uh, connection asset wisely then. Absolutely, absolutely. I can I can get that completely. And I just, uh, I, we've probably covered most of the stuff I wanted to cover and covered it very uh, succinctly, which I think is great. Uh, just coming back to the connection issues again, you've done a lot of modelling. Uh, mm -hmm. We've also got new rules about the one generator at a time kind of thing, which I don't really understand. Mm. Uh, is the, I don't quite understand what the issue has been with, with the other wind farms exactly. I mean, in the sense that they would have done their modelling mm -hmm. beforehand as as well. And is it the case that the rules have changed afterwards? Or, or I mean, what's, what's to stop these guys speeding up a little bit now that are already in the commissioning uh, queue? Yeah, well... Firstly, nobody actually tells you, so it's 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 all uh, rumor and scuttlebutt that's going around uh, because there's obviously confidentiality between um, what's going on between AEMO and those um, various projects. Um, what I'm hearing is that there is not one consistent problem. Um, the problems are typically project specific, except perhaps for the West Murray region um, problem that that cut across a whole raft of projects. But otherwise, I think it's more a project-specific um, problem in each case. And as to the one project at a time rule, um, I'm not quite sure uh, whether that is a, a wise move on one hand. It, on the other hand, I can also have some sympathy that, you know, if you do two or three projects at a time and then one project develops a problem um, or the more... Uh, in the modeling, somebody discovers there is a problem, then we get another West Murray um, snowball effect. So it, it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, I think in first place, it'd be really helpful if we had the, the best technical resources in this space, which is really scarce, uh, sitting and working at the AEMO. Um, and then and then the AEMO have more capacity to, to process and and connect more projects at the same time. Yeah, so I guess Australia must be developing, uh, must be a great place to work, whether you want to look at uh, the role of inverters in controlling the system or, or the uh, problems of managing these complex uh, grid interactions. Uh, are there enough uh, Are there enough skills sitting around the place and are they sitting in the right seats? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I'm sure we could have a beer over that. Um, what we're seeing is that a lot of the good talent actually leaves the AMO and then works for for you know, turbine suppliers or consultants. And and it, it'd be really great if, if some of that good talent was sitting at the AMO because it, it is more helpful when, when two um, parties with a, a very similar skill set and understanding and experience in connection processes would be sitting on either side of the table. Uh, we would see a lot more efficient um, processes there. And it's also fair to say that uh, there's also sometimes a lack of, of understanding um, on the um, generator side, you know, with, with all the complexity that AEMO and the, and the network service providers have to deal with. And it's a matter of, of probably better communication and making sure that we have the right skill sets. And they are scarce. They've been scarce before COVID. And I think with COVID, it's even more difficult um, because the, the influx of good talent from overseas is not there anymore. 
And so I, just before we finish up, I, I don't actually get a sense that this is really improving. I mean, people throw terms at me like PSCAD, uh, where you have to uh, build this now, this complete model of how things should work. And then when you actually do build it and show that your system works in that, it turns out that wasn't actually how it does work anyway. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, uh, is this going to actually improve in, in, in your opinion or are we sort of going to sort of sit here in this yeah. uh, messy state? I, I fear that we will feel more pain for a little bit longer. There is a, as a good argument for actually undertaking more measurements, what's going on in the network and, and measure at more points so that we're better able to correlate what people are modelling and what is happening in the actual network um, once we start doing that, um, we'll probably see improvements there in, in terms of, you know, reducing the fear factor a little bit um, from the people that do the modelling and not quite sure what that's going to do in a network. And nobody wants to then connect a generator to the network that at the end of the day might cause a blackout. So it, we need to find the right balance there between the, the PS cap modelling that happens beforehand and then afterwards measuring what the impact really is and then have the models learn from, from what you measure later. From what I hear, it's even worse with batteries because they can change what they're doing so quickly that mm. uh, even the model can't keep up. That's a joke. Uh, uh, Toby, <laughs> it's been great having you. It's been great talking to you. I really uh, appreciate hearing from such a, uh, an experienced operator and someone who's been around the traps a few times. And so uh, I wish uh, I wish uh, you and Westwind uh, every success with uh, the development of Golden Plains. It seems like a, it could be a great project. Uh, thank you very much, David. And it's been a great pleasure to be on the podcast with you. And I hope our listeners enjoyed this and didn't didn't uh, just switch off. <laughs> and that was Toby Geiger, the Managing Director of Westwind. Um, David, an absolutely massive project. Um, interesting that he's going to get moving before a PPA. I presume, I'm not too sure what that, how that sort of figures in with your general theory about price signals and things like that. But what was your biggest takeout from that conversation? Well, my, I suppose there are a number of takeouts. Firstly, wind projects are definitely getting bigger where, wherever we look. Um, and, you know, access to the grid is becoming more important or, and managing your grid connection is becoming the biggest constraint rather than actually having a PPA. And I think the people that are developing these projects do so with the understanding that decarbonisation is going to happen. The coal generators are... Uh, are, are going to exit the system one way or another. And in fact, building these projects makes them exit the system uh, in yes. truth. Uh, and and so that that is not the risk anymore because if a coal generator does exit, it, it, it provides the room for the replacement energy. And, you know, the fundamental problems in the electricity system and uh, they get discussed in the context of the ESB reforms is, is that, you know, if you, if you just think about it really, really simply, uh, the coal generation is going away. We need to build new capacity and make the system reliable before the coal generators close. Uh, because we saw with Calide that if it happens unexpectedly and you're not prepared, even in a state with oversupply like Queensland, it still causes problems. So you, we need to wear the cost. Uh, on the system of having uneconomic production producing for a few years in advance of the coal generation closing so that then electricity prices can go back to to normal. Uh, and 
down there in Victoria, they're going to have a lot of wind with big projects. Uh, we've got this one, and we've also got Star of the South. And the other project, other point, I think, that came out of it quite clearly, it's not about cost anymore. Uh, it's uh, If it ever was, it's always about value. Cost is only part of the value equation. Mm. And not only the Star of the South project, because Renew Economy can reveal um, on Friday, um, in conjunction with the publication of our latest um, uh, map, we've been mapping large-scale solar, large-scale wind, a uh, big battery map of Australia. We did a pumped hydro map we published earlier on this week. And um, on Friday, we published a large-scale offshore, um, sorry, a offshore wind map of Australia about all the different projects, about a dozen around the country um, and various states of proposals and, and kite flying. But um, interestingly, there's been we've discovered two new offshore wind projects for the Bass Strait. So uh, one near 90 Mile Beach, which is not a million miles away from Star of the South, and another one in Bass Strait um, looking to plug in at Burnie on the northern coast of Tasmania, hopefully with an eye to the Mariners link. So um, a, a bit of activity, um, people, I mean, these are long-term plays. There's a lot of work for these things to actually sort of get to fruition, but it's interesting that that many projects are being considered. And they all have uh, firming components with them too. I think that's increasingly becoming a part of the scene. Uh, and I guess that's what makes, in a sense, Giles, some of the um, uh, responses to the ESB uh, 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 platform or outlook uh so yes. interesting you, you've been having a look at that uh you know we i think we felt from the beginning that it was a pretty timid set of reforms the esb was proposing well timid but also not very much detail so they had these sort of draft proposals and if people remember from our excellent interview with um kerry shot on this um, energy insiders podcast a month or so ago um they insisted that they were not be particularly beholden or attached to any particular point of view but the one a lot of it is being quite well supported people are quite interested in the detail the big red flag came up in this sort of physical retailer RRO this retailer reliability obligation and it was seen basically as a bit of a stop or a subsidy to the coal-fired generators would just give them um, added revenue at a time when it's not really needed it would sort of um, prevent them being sort of leveraged out of the system huge amount of debate around that um, big supporter from Energy Australia um, Alinta was supposed to be a supporter but doesn't actually like the design it it likes a capacity market, but doesn't want one that looks like this. And a lot of opposition from a lot of other people who suggest that capacity markets are not particularly effective, will actually increase costs and not really suitable for renewable energy generation. It was interesting to note that Snowy Hydro in a, uh, in a um, very interesting debate between Snowy Hydro's uh, CFO Gordon Weimer and um, Alinta CEO uh, Jeff Dimery in a Credit Suisse uh conference on um, on thursday sort of you know putting in their different point of view of this but david it really came down to everyone kind of talking their books snowy hydro doesn't like capacity markets because it doesn't suit their portfolio um alinta does like a capacity market because it does suit their portfolio but we may be seeing some movement in some of the other big generators we 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 get to see well, I, I, um, you know, so firming and capacity are kind of related target topics. And certainly as we get increase the share of variable renewable energy, wind and solar, which I think everyone agrees is happening, then the way in which we're going to keep the system reliable and the amount of dispatchable, how we're going to firm the system up and how much dispatchable capacity we need and how much gas versus how much batteries versus how much pump per hydro uh, and, and the mechanism 
mechanism for doing that is all very important. Um, uh, but it, if, if you have a physical market that encourages the coal capacity to stay around longer, it's just basically fundamentally defe defeats the basic purpose of decarbonising the electricity system. Uh, we've seen in the UK the capacity market was designed to induce new gas when it was uh, first introduced and ended up not doing that, but actually keeping the coal generators around for a long time because they've got all their sunk costs and they, they can essentially bid their capacity in at, at, at a relatively cheap level. But as I said, that's uh, it's not the way to do it in any way, shape or form. And I kind of agree with the point that, uh, by and large, the coal generators are going to be not that well suited to responding to a very quickly moving market. Uh, even gas generator has struggles in, with five-minute settlement when things, you know, clouds come across the system and the solar just drops all of a sudden. Uh, it's it's hard to respond with in that time. And um, one of the people making the points, Ebidrola, or formerly Infigen Energy, and they've got some very um, influential um, people there, including sort of Tim Nelson, formerly from the AMC and from AGL previously, um, talking at talking about that and, and and opposing these capacity markets, saying that they're inefficient, and actually lamenting the fact that the ESB seems to be coming at this again as the original designers of the national electricity market more than twenty years ago, without climate as part of their considerations, and they just well that makes it really hard almost impossible to come up with a reasonable solution that sort of takes into account the global trends and um, and what needs to happen. Well, you know, and this is this incremental approach uh, muddled through of just trying to keep modifying the existing system little bit by little bit uh, rather than having a clear end goal in mind. And uh, that's, I think, the ESB, uh, frankly, as the preeminent uh, policy-making body, really needs to get out there uh, and stay, this is, this is where we think the system's going to be. Not to just say the coal generators are going to go away, they're uneconomic. That's fine, that's true, but uh, let's help them go away by all means. But let's start with a clear goal of this is where we're going to end up in 20 years' time, uh, and and this is the roadmap to actually get there. Mm. So anyway, that's the way I think about it. Well, that's right. And look, um, Alan Finkel fell into the same um, hole when he was doing the National Energy Guarantee because he wasn't actually thinking about a rapid transition then. He was just trying to design something that suited the federal government's 26 to 28% emissions reduction target by 2030. But David, we should touch on the fact that the gen latest GenCost report came out. And what was really interesting there was that, well, battery storage costs have fallen even further under their considerations, which just means that solar and wind um, paired with batteries and obviously probably going to be some sort of pumped hydro are the cheapest um, solution to a transition to renewables, be it 50%, 60%, 70%, 80% or even 90% renewables. And basically the path we seem to be put on by the federal government, and this comes from the CSIRO and the AEMO, um, is the most expensive path. Well, I don't know. They've put us on any path. They've got this technology-led process, which is just a, a form of measly mouth. It's not even greenwashing because they don't even acknowledge the need to decarbonise. Uh, they just sort of say it's going to happen. Uh, you know, it's a completely hopeless path. I, I'm not going to spend time talking about uh, Angus Taylor and, 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 and federal policy because it is completely useless. And we're going to see that when they stand up and, you know, make excuses at the G7 kind of thing. And there's not much, as I said, there's absolutely nothing to say with it. Yeah. They're, not, they're just not providing the leadership uh, that they could provide. And it's quite obvious that with good leadership and good management, we could do it more efficiently and at a lower cost, uh, rather than having the states taking their own individual process and essentially giving up all the benefits of the national market or some of them that have been took so, were so hard to develop in the first place. And it's, it's all been put at risk uh, 
you know, and I, I look at the statements uh, coming out of the uh, energy minister in, in Queen, who's Queensland Nationals based, and you, you know, it's just. They live in a different planet. Uh, and what, what else can we say? What else can we say? Well, and- that different planet is Queensland. And, you know, I hope well, they lose all three rugby league games. Well, that's not very nice of you, David. Um, but um, but look, at the same token, well, you've got, I think you're probably talking about Keith Pitt there and um, the, the Resources Minister, the LNP Resources Minister. But at the same time, the Queensland State Government is going gangbusters. I mean, it's been very busy over the last week. It's announced a, a major um, funding for a major pumped hydro facility. It talked about a battery blitz last week. Now it's just announced um, a $2 billion renewables and hydrogen fund. It's got more green hydrogen investments. And now we've got the Japan coal and an oil refiner um, investing in a solar plant in the Western Downs. Um, they seem to have been very sort of galvanised by the Calide explosion last week and have made all sorts of announcements to sort of try and accelerate the transition. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, the Queen, uh, at the same time, they also support lots of new coal mines because, as Anastasia Palaszczuk, uh, Palaszczuk says regularly, Queenslanders want it all. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Look, uh, the, the, uh, um, there's, there's not too much more to, to say about that. Um, uh, we do think electricity prices in the short term are going uh, going up. I mean, Cal- take Calides taken um, the explosions took a, a thousand megawatts out of the system. Uh, we talked about this last week. It's going to be replaced, uh, despite the kind of futility of that. Um, and uh, it's made prices go up a lot. But uh, I would say that from ITK's point of view, that we still see a lot of new wind and solar supply uh, coming in, not so much in Queensland, but over the rest of, of Australia over the next while. And so eventually that will push the prices uh, back down again. Mm. Just before we wrap up, David, there's an awful lot of people putting their assets up for sale um, in Australia. Australia. I mean, there's um, probably more than half a dozen, possibly about 10 um, different projects. And for different reasons, I guess the latest is sort of Sanjeev Gupta um, struggling with finance. He's had to put his Coltana solar farm and his Playford battery up for sale. But Yeah, it's a shame he didn't put his private jet up for sale or a few of his castles around the place. That might have uh, done some people in, in Wyala a bit more good than just putting the, you know, Coltana up for sale, mightn't it? I mean, that, you know, just, uh, don't start me there. But, you know, the bigger point, Giles, the bigger point is as... IVK to pat ourselves on the back and my colleague Ben Willisey, uh, we, we wrote about this consolidation of the market. I mean, it's pretty typical that you get lots of essentially first-time uh, developers of like solar farms come in. A lot of them find it's not as easy as all that. Uh, the uh, tail end of the pro, uh, post-PPA value of the projects is not as high as they hoped it would be. Uh, the banks get a, a, bit, a bit grumpy about it and everyone starts selling up, and uh, the people who are the long-term stayers and players uh, end up consolidating the industry and uh, having lots of projects and have been big enough to withstand the shocks that uh, come with any problems with any individual one. Mm, very good. And as one final, final, final point, um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance has also released a major report about the global EV industry, and they had something special to say about Australia, one that we should actually be um, perfectly placed to uh, adopt um, EVs because a lot of us live in um, separate housing and um, on our quarter acre blocks or whatever and great opportunity to have solar power and um, dual charging but the biggest impediment as you have lamented uh, many times in the past David was the lack of federal government policy but um, just um, a really interesting report which we might delve into more next week. David um, thank you very much for doing the great interview with uh, Toby Geiger. Yeah, no, it was a it was a pleasure to do that, Giles. It's a it's a pleasure to uh, be able to uh, 
help analyze the industry uh, and uh, we hope our listeners and sponsors get as much uh, have as much fun listening to it as, as we do actually making it absolutely and we'd like to thank our sponsors of course um, pylon and evergen um, pylon i think have just come up with a new product on solar shading so um, keep a look out for that i think we've sort of published something about that of a thick on one step off the grid um, thanks to all our listeners. Do look out for our other podcast, The Driven Podcast. Uh, we interviewed Dan Bleachley, who's been taking his Tesla up and showing others and the new Great Solar Business podcast as well. Um, so do listen to all of those and for our videos, which are a bit of fun as well. And we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.